From Interlochen Public Radio, this is Unnatural Selection, a series about the ripple effects of the human footprint. I'm Morgan Springer. And I'm Dan Wanshura. These are stories of environmental management. Gone right, gone wrong, gone out of control. And this story starts on an island that's out of whack. Its forests are bare and quiet. And flesh-eating deer walk on the beach, snatching fish out of the water. Today, episode four, Forest of the Living Dead. Here to bring us this story is reporter Patrick Shea. Patrick, this sounds like science fiction. It really does, but this is a true story. We're going to North Manitou Island. It's part of Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore here in Michigan. And Steve Yoncho was one of the first park rangers to set foot on the island in the late 1970s. The forest was uh, more of a park-like setting. You could see under the trees real easily. That's because deer had eaten all the vegetation on the forest floor. Some of these trees, would, you know, the tops would snap off and fall onto the ground. And those treetops would just be gnarled down to the hard wood where the deer would come in and just you know, chew off every bit of bark that they could. These were signs that the deer on North Manitou Island were about to starve. Steve and other park rangers went out on winter surveys to see just how bad the problem really was. We would ski these routes and and do our deer counts. Uh, You would find deer that were still alive but were too weak to stand up. They were, you know, just, you know, in the last throes of starvation. In the spring when you'd go out, the dying deer, as they were getting to that point, would find just any building, any old barn, or sometimes an abandoned car, and just anything to get out of the weather. And you'd find you know, 50, 60 or more deer just dead in one room. And same as a car, you'd find you know, 10 or 20 deer that would jam into a car and die. Were employees having to go like clean up deer bones from inside all these? Yeah, they had to be cleaned up. <laughs> Wow, that doesn't sound like a super No, it wasn't the most pleasant job. Wait, why are these deer cramming into cars and buildings? They're just trying to get out of the wind and cold. You know, looking for somewhere to curl up and die, really. That does not sound pleasant. That sounds like a horror movie, Patrick. Yeah. And in the summer, things got even weirder. Yeah, I was uh, on a little bluff overlooking a beach, and I'd seen these deer coming down, and just right in front of me, they were, you know, picking off these dead, dried-up alewives off the beach. Alewives are fish, so deer eating fish. And what Steve saw wasn't just one freak incident. The researcher that was out there in the early 80s actually did some documentation of that also, and uh, he estimated that 30 to 50 percent of their daily diet was comprised of alewives in some instances. And it wasn't just the dead ones on the shore. He sometimes saw these fish as they were being washed in with the waves, and the deer were standing out in the waves and kind of, you know, trying to grasp at these fish in the water. That can't be good. That doesn't sound like, I mean, that's not normal, is it? No, definitely not normal. Okay, what is going on with this island? Well, what was going on was basically a deer farm. In a national park? This predates the park. It all started in 1925. There were people living year-round on North Manitou back then, and they wanted a private deer herd for hunting. At first, they brought just nine whitetails from Pennsylvania to the island. But by 1940, 
almost all 14,000 acres of North Manitou were bought by a wealthy Detroit businessman named William Angel. He saw the herd as a financial opportunity, so he started leaving feed piles and salt licks out for the deer, and with no predators around, they ate their fill in peace. The herd grew until there were well over 2,000 whitetails on the island. Is that a lot? Put that in perspective for us. Well, I'm no mathematician, but I got about 91 deer per square mile. Now just compare that to the rest of Michigan, which has about 30 deer per square mile. So yeah, that's a, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Patrick, it sounds like this angel guy is a businessman, but where's the money in a big deer herd like that? In shooting them. Angel started marketing the island as a hunting retreat for the uber-wealthy. Eric McDonald is an environmental historian who literally wrote the book on North Manitou. Here he is imagining what a guest on the island might have experienced back then. If he had enough money, he might be able to go to North Manitou Island. Uh, He's going to be staying in this lodge. Uh, He's going to have people feeding him and taking him out into the forest. It wasn't uncommon for guests on North Manitou to shoot four or five deer in a single afternoon. And even if you were a really poor shot, there was still a one deer guarantee. One of the employees would go get one for for them. And again, that gives you, I think, some kind of indication of how many deer there were. And maybe, you know, if you were interested in deer hunting, it would be kind of a northern Michigan paradise. William Angel passed away in 1950, but his hunting paradise carried on. Then, in the 1970s, the Park Service bought North Manitou, and the island went into a sort of limbo phase. The hunting retreat stopped, the deer weren't being fed, and so they ate what they could on the forest floor. And it didn't take long for that food to run out. And that brings us to those bizarre, disturbing sights that Steve Yoncho saw on the island. That was part of an ongoing cycle. Lots of food leads to more deer. Too many deer, not enough food. Starvation. Then the forest starts to grow back, the deer population booms again, and it starts all over. It's a vicious cycle, and it harms more than just the deer themselves. Lee Freilich is a forest ecologist at the University of Minnesota. He's studied the impacts of overbrowsing all over the Upper Great Lakes. Yeah, overbrowsing is whenever... The deer continue to eat the seedlings for a long time. You know, they can essentially create a forest of, um, you know, we might call it the living dead. There's still live trees, but they, and until the deer go, they, there's no prospect that they could possibly reproduce. And so what gradually happens is the older trees die off without being replaced and other species replace them and they very slowly go extinct. On North Manitou, pretty much all tree species are being replaced with beech trees, which deer don't really like the taste of and also don't have the nutrients that deer need. Freilich says that change in the forest can have a sort of domino effect. If you wipe out all but one tree species, you're going to take a lot of other species in every taxonomic group along with it. Wildflowers, the fungi, the insects... Because you'll find different species under beech than under hemlock or under maple. You would even have fewer bird species nesting on the island. Because some birds like to nest in conifers, some birds like to nest in aspen and birch. So it feeds through it with what we call an ecological cascade. Wow. I never realized deer could have such a huge impact on 
everything else, really. Yeah, it sounds like uh, the ripple effects of the deer herd's footprints. Yeah, and I guess the footprints of whoever released those first nine whitetails on the island. But were there really no deer on the island before then? Like, none at all. I mean, we can't really say for sure if a single whitetail ever crossed the ice in all of history, right? But there are some clues to suggest there was never a true herd on North Manitou. We can tell that by just looking a few miles south to the neighboring island, South Manitou. That's where Steve Yoncho worked in the early 70s. You know, South Manitou, since it didn't have deer, um, it has this real thick undergrowth of uh, vegetation. It's very dense in, in some spots. And there's also uh, yew on South Manitou, also known as ground hemlock. Steve's talking about Canada yew. That's a kind of conifer shrub that deer love to eat. That's why you really only find it in hard-to-reach places, like steep ravines, rocky cliffs, or, of course, stranded on an island in Lake Michigan. Except not North Manitou. Yeah, when we got to North Manitou, there was you know an abrupt difference in that there was no yew uh, that uh, was visible anywhere. And really, not much else growing either. A pretty empty forest floor. Now, North Manitou is an extreme... But this cycle of overbrowsing and starvation has happened on a statewide level, several times. The fates of deer and the forests they live in are very intertwined. But there's another player in all this, and it's us. We have a major influence on these booms and busts, and not necessarily in the ways we think we do. We tend to overestimate the importance of harvest and of regulating harvest, especially for species like deer. That's Brent Rudolph. And I know, we're talking about deer. His name's Rudolph. Let's move on. He's in nonprofit conservation work now. But in his time as a wildlife research specialist with the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, he wrote a paper on the history of deer management in the state. And here's the gist of it. In the late 1800s, Michigan's deer population was dwindling. So recreational hunters lobbied the state to restrict when and where hunting could happen. Hunters are really up <laughs> near the front of the line in terms of having a, a pronounced interest in what happens with deer in their individual states because it's a pastime that many of them have a lot of passion, a lot of interest in. By the early 1920s, deer hunting was entirely illegal in about a third of Michigan's counties. The plan was to take a few years and strengthen the herd. And at first, it seemed like that plan was working. The deer population did grow for a while, but it wasn't just because of new rules. There was something much bigger at play. A lot of the early boom and busts came because land was cleared dramatically and extensively. Even before those hunting restrictions, everything was changing in the Northwoods. Old growth forests were being cut down at a rapid pace. This logging frenzy is often called the cutover, and the result was a sea of giant stumps from horizon to horizon. Then, over the next few decades, the forest did what forests do. It grew. Deer and many other wildlife depend upon young forest habitat, the, the vegetation growing down close to the, the surface where they can reach it uh, for food. And so... The first flush of new growth meant there was great habitat everywhere. Rudolph says that's what really caused Michigan's deer herd to explode in numbers, not hunting restrictions. It was fresh food growing pretty much all at once, 
the state went from an estimated 45,000 deer in 1914 to 1.5 million by the late 1940s. And what happened next isn't too different from what happened on North Manitou. The deer overbrowsed the growing forest and began to starve. We probably still to this day don't appreciate as much as uh, we should that there are major land use and landscape changes that have driven a lot of the cycles of abundance. Eventually, wildlife managers caught on to this correlation between tree growth and deer population. Through the 70s and 80s, the DNR spent $20 million on selective cutting in state forests. Within a decade, the result was a patchwork of young trees. This was hugely successful in growing the herd. It even worked a little too well. Before long, there was another boom and another bust. There seems to be a pattern to this. Yeah, I mean, really repetitive. It really is. And we have learned from the past. But the DNR still uses hunting regulations as its main tool for deer management. It loosens restrictions where signs of overbrowsing are present to prevent starvation and try to keep forests healthy. And it's not easy at all to strike that balance. We started this cycle, but we don't have as much control over it as we might like to think. Why not? Because of the cutover, that moonscape of stumps at the turn of last century. Those clear cuts restarted forest timelines, kind of synced them up. And when you look at Michigan's deer herd through the last century, the booms line up with young forest growth. Hmm. So, so can we break this cycle then? That's a good question. We make alterations here and there, and sometimes we even think ahead a few decades in our forest planning, but the cutover undid thousands of years of complex forest processes. We won't get those systems back anytime soon. But on an island like North Manitou, this cycle of overbrowsing and starvation is accelerated. And maybe the solution could be, too. You know, one thing they can do in a national park is have a relationship with some local hunters. That's Lee Freilich again, the forest ecologist. And the good news is, the Park Service is already doing that. It's November 2021, a crisp morning, and the Leland Ferry is on its final trip of the season. The Mishimukwa Ferry leaves without passengers, but returns from North Manitou, full of hunters in orange hats and camo. There's a pile of deer carcasses stacked in the bow. And as the boat pulls up to the dock, passengers scramble to unload gear and deer. Some of the more successful hunters hoist trophy bucks over the port side. Uh, I am going to get this guy cooled down and find a taxidermist as soon as possible because he's going on the wall and I'm going to enjoy some venison with myself and my family. Jason Crable traveled from Michigan's Upper Peninsula for this special annual hunt. He poses for a picture with his 11-pointer and he's just full of smiles. It's kind of still settling in how big he is and how, how good of a buck he is. This is the annual North Manitou deer hunt. Over 200 hunters just spent a cold, windy week on the remote island. They're returning from a rugged backcountry hunting experience unlike any other in the Upper Great Lakes. Now, what's the first thing you're going to do now that you're back on the I'm eating a hamburger. Sorry. I'm eating a hamburger. That's Dan Giddis from nearby Lake Ann, Michigan. He says he didn't get a deer this time around, but still had an unforgettable week. Uh, you know, just the, the sights on the island. It's still the adventure, man. The adventure is what it's all about. 
This hunt has been going on since 1984. In November, 160 deer were harvested. That number fluctuates with the boom and bust cycles, but the hope is hunters will keep driving numbers down in the long run. And so far, they have been. Here's Lee Frelick again. I think if they can get it down to like five per square mile or less, then things might recover. So that's what I would recommend for a place like North Manitou. That's an ambitious goal. But every year, boatloads of hunters bring the island one step closer to recovery. That's reporter Patrick Shea. Coming up next week, the idea that wilderness is untouched by man is written into law, but it's not so accurate. Using fire, humans have shaped many places we now call wilderness. That was really what made us start to realize there is a more nuanced story waiting to be told. How tree rings affirm a long history of indigenous land management. That's next time. Today's story was written and produced by Patrick Shea. It was edited by me, Morgan Springer. Our consulting editor is Peter Payette. I'm Dan Wanshura. Music for this episode by Max Dragu, Marlon Ladine, and Santa. Unnatural Selection is a special series of our podcast, Points North. You can find more environmental stories from the Upper Great Lakes at pointsnorthradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, consider subscribing to, rating, and reviewing the show. Thanks.